All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the Word this morning, let's ask the Lord's guidance and direction on our study. Our Father, we're thankful we have your Word that you have preserved down through the centuries and that we have confidence that though we are using a translation, this translation reflects the eternal truth of your Word. And that as we come to understand it more fully through a study through the original languages, we come to a precise realization that you have spoken and that this resonates throughout all eternity. Father, we pray now that as we study and continue in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, especially during the last week, that we may come to more fully understand how your word fits together, how the old uh, sets the stage for the new and how the new fulfills the old that we may see that the Bible is not a collection of individual parts, but that it is all very neatly fitted together in a whole that unifies all of the parts, and that we can therefore have great confidence in the truth of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll begin this morning in Matthew 21, but we won't stay there. So open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 21, and what I want to do initially is give us a little bit of a flyover of the next, uh, of the next five or six chapters. The next five chapters cover what is going on during the time of, uh, Christ's last week in Jerusalem. Then starting in chapter 26, we see the events leading up to the crucifixion and then the resurrection in chapter 27. And then chapter 28 covers the last period of time with his, with his disciples. Now, in order to understand this a little bit, what I want to do is just give us a fl- little bit of a flyover. And then we're going to go into an Old Testament passage. We're going to go to Psalm 118 because that Psalm sets the backdrop for what happens in the first chapter here in chapter 21. I had hoped that this would be, I would cover this in um, in one message, but the more I dug into the psalm, the more I discovered that was there. We need to take uh, at least two weeks just going through that psalm, but that sets up the backdrop and the uh, uh, foundation for what happens in, in Matthew 21. What we have to understand is that the Old Testament prophesies, predicts, and also displays various patterns of things that are related to the coming of the Messiah and his person and his work. And the New Testament, as the writers of the Gospels we've seen, as they develop their, their arguments for who Jesus is and what he did, they quote from the Old Testament, especially Matthew. Matthew quotes from the Old Testament more than the other Uh, three gospel writers do, but it shows us that what Christ did 
is grounded in what is predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament. And in order to fully appreciate what Matthew is telling us, we need to go back and look at these Old Testament passages so that we can see how the Bible fits fits together, that the Old Testament complements the New, the New Testament fulfills the Old, and that you don't just go in, which is the matter of too many pastors and too many preachers, and you just teach these little topics, and you go here and you go there, but nobody sees how the text is interdependent and interrelated so that you you have to trust it all or you can't trust any of it and that we can trust trust all of it and we'll see a little bit more about the importance and evidence for why we we believe the text uh when I look at some things uh out of order in first Samuel or not in first Samuel on Tuesday night but let's just do a quick overview of what's coming we see in chapter 21 uh, the beginning of this last week of Christ leading up to the crucifixion. In 21 chapter 1 down through 21:17, we see Jesus presenting himself to Israel as the king, as the Messiah, as the son of David, a title that is definitely going to be used in the first uh, 10 verses of the, this chapter. In the first seven verses, we see that our Lord prepares the circumstances uh, for his presentation. I think I have this in the side, slide here. We're going to see how the Lord presents himself in 21.1 to 21.17 and how he prepares the circumstances for his presentation in these first seven verses. And that's going to be just the details of sending the disciples ahead to Jerusalem, uh, to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives to find the colt of a donkey on which he would ride into the city in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah. The disciples do this, fulfill the command to do that, and they will prepare the donkey on which Jesus will ride as he enters into the city. That's the first seven verses. The next uh, five verses, he is entering into the city, or four verses, he enters into Jerusalem on the donkey in fulfillment of the prophecy, and as he approaches the city, there will be a multitude of his followers who will uh, speak out, who will uh, praise him, they will sing from Psalm 118, and they will throw their clothes upon the, the, the road. They will cut down branches from the trees and spread them out on the road in front of him. And all throughout this, they are singing from Psalm uh, 118, verses 24 to 26, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, we need to ask this question is, what is significant about that? What are they saying? What does Hosanna mean? And we will take a look at that. We have to understand Psalm 118 in order to answer those and some other questions. And this celebration, as they are rejoicing that he is entering in, causes other people to ask the question, well, who is this that's coming into the city? Who is Jesus? Why is he important? And they will be forced to explain that. Then our Lord begins to demonstrate his uh, messianic credentials, and he cleanses the temple. He will heal the blind and the lame in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This, in turn, sets off a hostile reaction among the chief priests and the scribes, and that's the focus of 21.11 to 16. 
Now, another thing that's going on there as a lead-up to Pesach, to Passover. Pesach is the Hebrew word, and this is at the beginning. In fact, the same time that Jesus comes into the city is the day that they would be selecting the lamb that would be the offering for Pesach, the lamb that was to be without spot or blemish. And that this period of time from the 10th of the month of Nisan on the Hebrew calendar to the 14th was a time when the lamb would be evaluated to make sure it was indeed without spot or blemish. So what's going to happen as Jesus comes into the city is that he is going to be uh, tested, examined, evaluated, and criticized by all of the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and the chief priests. All of them are going to uh, in, uh, challenge him and evaluate him and question him, and he is going to come out of that demonstrating that he has a firm understanding of the Scripture, that he is who he claims to be, and that he is there to uh, bring things to a conclusion in terms of God's plan of paying for the penalty uh, penalty of our sins. So he's demonstrating who he is by what he is doing in terms of uh, cleansing the temple, healing the lame, and that causes this reaction from the chief priests and the scribes. This confrontation uh, between the Messiah and the religious leaders uh, goes on through the end of chapter uh, 22. It includes the judgment of the fig tree when he sees this this beautiful full fig tree. Remember, it's spring. I came. I went to Israel just now. Just uh, we arrived there just at the end of the feast of unleavened bread. Uh, feast of unleavened bread. During that period of time, the first day is the first day of Passover. They remove all the leaven from the house, all the bread, uh, uh, all the chametz is taken out of the house, and the house is cleansed. And for a week, there's. In a, if you're a Jewish family, you don't eat anything but matzah, peanut butter and matzah, butter and matzah, matzah in your soup. It's just nothing but matzah. When we left to go over there, I, I didn't put it together because I was too busy thinking about packing and everything, but I got an email from our travel agent, and, said, and she said, if you want bread, we have to go to an Arab restaurant for lunch. And it didn't click with me. I said, well, you know, I really don't eat that much bread. I didn't say anything about bread. What's that all about? So if you want bread other than matzah, you have to go to an Arab restaurant. So that became clear when we got there. So we arrived that time. So this is the spring of the year. At the spring of the year, a fig tree is full and green, and it's putting out, already putting out little figs that are about the size of the end of your little finger. And I saw several fig trees like that. And Jesus curses this fig tree. So what is that all about? He's going to have confrontations with the chief priests, the Pharisees, the elders. Uh, and in this, he has uh, three parables that are significant for understanding God's plan and purposes for the Jewish people. And there's a lot of confusion over the meaning of these uh, these parables. This is followed by another confrontation with the, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians in chapter 22, verses 16 to 22, a confrontation with the Sadducees in verses 23 to 33, a conversation with a lawyer. This would have been a Torah expert uh, from the Pharisees uh, trying to trip Jesus up in verses 34 to 46. And all of that basically shows that Jesus is being rejected by the religious leaders of Israel, 
the Lamb of God, the Savior God has prepared for the last uh, 4,500 years or so of human history is rejected by the religious leaders of Israel. And then in chapter 23, after Jesus condemns the religious leaders, uh, he shows why in this discourse against specifically the religious teaching of the Pharisees. Uh, they have rejected him, and he rejects their religiosity, and this is a blanket indictment and condemnation that the leaders of Israel have rejected the Messiah, and for this reason they will come under divine discipline. Then in Matthew 24 to 25, there's the uh, discourse called the uh, Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is uh, answering the question from his disciples is, what will be the signs of your coming? And so we get into prophecy. We get into some significant uh, parables as well in that section that we have to understand. But remember, it's all related to Israel. It's not related to the church yet. So we have to understand uh, these parables. And then in Matthew 26 to 27, we have the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Messiah. And then in chapter 28, we'll have uh, the closing, uh, the closing uh, comments, challenge to his uh, to his disciples. Now, as we look at the chapter before us in chapter twenty one, we have to understand that the backdrop for this is Psalm one hundred and eighteen. It's the last uh, psalm in a set of psalms that referred to as the Hallel Psalms. Now, the Hebrew word Hallel means praise. If you take that verb to praise and you make it a command and you're commanding a group of people rather than saying y'all praise, they would say Hallelujah. Okay, y'all have heard that somewhere before, I think. They would say Hallelujah, and it's that you at the end that is a second person plural imperative. It's a command to praise. And then if there's an object to the praise, then that's added. And that's, if you're praising God, it's hallelujah. So hallelujah isn't praising God. Hallelujah is a command to praise God. Sadly, we live in a world where so many Christians are shallow, superficial, and untaught. And they think that by simply saying praise God or hallelujah, that they are praising God. But those terms, are com it's a command to praise God, and what should follow is a description of what God has done in your life, how God has done it in your life, how he's answered prayer, how he's delivered you, how he's provided for you, how he's given salvation. But there's content that should uh, fill out what it the 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 content, the meaning, and the whys and the wherefores of praising God. And so these particular psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, are psalms that are uh, particularly focused on calling the people of Israel as a community of believers to praise God. And these were psalms that were sung at the various feast days. There were three feast days that all of Israel was commanded, all of the males in Israel were commanded to come to Jerusalem and to worship God there. The first of those was at Pesach, at Passover. The second is at 
Pentecost, uh, 50 days uh, after the first Sunday after uh, Passover, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three times every year, every adult male, not only those who lived in Israel, but those who lived in the diaspora, were required to come back to Israel and to worship at uh, at, at the temple. And it was from those Psalms, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, specifically that would be sung at the end of the uh, Passover meal, at the end of a Seder. And we're told in the Gospels that when the disciples finished eating the, the Seder meal with our Lord, that they sang and then they went out. And this is that from which they they, they sang. And I want you to notice, we turn down to um, the end of, the, of uh, Psalm 118. There's a reference in verse 27 that Jesus would have sung this. I want you to think about this. They celebrate the Lord's, ta- the Lord's table. He invests the Seder with new meaning, just as we talked about in the uh, uh, Lord's table, which we just celebrated. And then they sing from these hymns and listen to what he sings as he's going out. He's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to get arrested. He's going to go through the trials, and he's going to be crucified. And this is what he is singing. Look at verse 27. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Remember, Jesus is the light of the world. He's given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And he's singing this. And he's the sacrifice that's going to be bound to the altar the next day. So this all shows how everything here uh, ties together and fits together. So these Hallel Psalms were sung at these special festivals, especially at um, uh, Pesach, Passover, And in the original context of these psalms, they were sung in the Old Testament as a large group of believers would be in a procession going up the Temple Mount to enter the temple and to praise God, offer sacrifices at one of these particular uh, particular feasts. That procession of people would, in the period before the Babylonian captivity, would have been led by the king. Uh, after the Babylonian captivity, there was no king. They would be led by a political leader, the governor, or they might be led by uh, by the high priest. We don't know what the specifics uh, specifics would have been at that particular time, but they would have been led up to the Temple Mount in order to worship God. Now, this psalm was written to celebrate God's deliverance of the nation from a time of intense discipline. Now, you may not catch that if you read it through in the English, and there's a lot of debate uh, among scholars as to who wrote this, when it was written, what the occasion were, but most scholars believe it was a post-exilic psalm, and I think that's right. Um, Others think that it's just kind of a generic psalm to celebrate God's deliverance over uh, military victory or something like that. I think that those who take it that way and who may put it before the exile aren't really paying attention to the specifics of a lot of the language that we will see in this particular psalm. So this psalm is sung. Now, if we look at at um, key verse in this part of this first 10 verses that we're going to look at, 
When Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, we're told that the multitudes who went before and those who followed, in other words, all around him, are singing, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, this is not just something they decided was a good thing to say. It comes out of a particular psalm, Psalm 118, verse 26, and they understand what it is that they are singing. They understand its significance to some degree as they are welcoming the Messianic king into Jerusalem. Remember, Matthew presents him as the Messianic king. He offered the kingdom. The kingdom was rejected by uh, Matthew chapter 12, and he announced a judgment on the people. But he is still uh, training his disciples after that, focusing them that there's still a future for, for Israel, even though this, that generation had rejected him. Now, this is in Matthew 21.9. And Matthew 21.9, he says, the psalm says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, we have to understand, what does that mean? Now, this phrase brackets a lot of these events in the, this last week of Jesus. It's stated here as he enters the city, and then at the end of Matthew 23.39, when Jesus has... Uh, condemned in chapter 23, he has rejected the religious leaders of Israel. What does he say at the conclusion of that rejection? He says, I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See how that statement brackets everything that's in between. It's all going to be ultimately related to he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And this phrase, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, by the first century had become an accepted title for the Messiah, that he's the one who will come. He is the coming one. The woman at the well refers to him this way. Are you the coming one? And that comes out of this passage in Psalm 118, uh, 26. So, Let's take a look at the opening part of Psalm 118. This is a great praise psalm, and it's a communal thanksgiving psalm, which means it is to be used by the community of believers as a whole as they come together giving thanks to God and worshiping Him. In the commentary on the psalms by Kyle and Dalich, Franz Dalich was a German Jew who became a believer in Jesus Christ. This is a classic commentary written in the 19th century they commented that this was one of Martin Luther's favorite psalms. His beauteous uh, confidimini, which is a Latin term for a particular type of praise or thanksgiving psalm, they said this had helped him out of trouble, or he said, Luther had said, this had helped him out of troubles, out of which neither emperor nor king nor any other man on earth could have helped him. With the exposition of this, his noblest jewel, his defense and his treasure, he occupied himself in the solitude of his Patmos. Now, if you miss the metaphor there, the island of Patmos was an island off the coast of Turkey, off of where Ephesus is located, and it was where the apostle John was exiled. So he's living there by himself in exile and isolation. Luther had a similar experience in that he was imprisoned uh, in the castle of Marburg, I believe, 
and as he was going to be tried by the Holy Roman Emperor uh, for heresy. So this was one of his favorite, favorite psalms. And it is, uh, as we look at it, we need to understand a few things about it. First of all, as I've stated already, it's a communal thanksgiving psalm, and it begins in verse 1 with this call to give thanks to the Lord. In the Hebrew, it's hodu, and it's just the form of the word meaning to give thanks, and it calls for the people to give public thanks, and this is used in, in several different psalms. We'll see some of these references a little bit later on. Psalm 33, 2, uh, the psalmist calls upon the people to praise the Lord with harp. Uh, that giving praise is actually hodu in the Greek, and it should be translated give thanks to the Lord. But often these ideas get shifted some in translation because the way you're praising God is to do what? Is to give thanks. But um, And to give thanks to the Lord is to praise him. So Psalm 33, 2 actually translates hodu as praise, but it's the same phrase to give thanks to the Lord. Other verses, such as Psalm 105.1, Psalm 106.1, Psalm 118 is bracketed by this statement. If you look at the first verse, we read, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And the last verse, at the end of verse uh, chapter 118, verse 29, says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. So what do you think this psalm is going to be about? Giving thanks to the Lord and describing how God has been merciful to Israel and how that will endure forever. In seven of these verses where this is found, we have the same phrase, give thanks to the Lord for his mercy endures forever. You could take that by way of application as something you could include in your prayers, is giving thanks to the Lord because his mercy endures forever. Now, we don't know who wrote this psalm. It's, there's not a, an ascription to identify either the author or the specific occasion for the psalm. And this has led to a lot of debate, as I indicated earlier, among, among so, uh, scholars. It appears to have been sung by a Davidic leader, a political leader over Israel who represents them and then leads them into the temple to praise God for his act of mercy in delivering them from some extreme dire circumstance. This isn't just a standard deliverance from a battle, but something that threatened the very existence of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And uh, that language that we'll run into in the psalm indicates that this was an extreme and distinct kind of situation. In fact, it was a disciplinary action upon Israel by the Lord, one of the most extreme. That's going to help us because we need to understand some things about why this psalm is written and those historical circumstances so that we can properly understand what's going on when we get into Matthew chapter uh, chapter 21. As we uh, look at this psalm, 
As I said, it appears to be written by a political leader of the Israelites. It might be Zerubbabel, who was a Davidic descendant, who is not a king, but he's governor of Israel after they returned from the exile. Remember, in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Israel was defeated. The city of Jerusalem was sacked. The temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and the people were taken off into exile. Some that weren't taken off by the Babylonians left, and they went down to Egypt. Jeremiah was taken uh, by that group, but the majority went to Babylon. And there they were in captivity for 70 years until God restored them to the land under the leadership of Cyrus, who was the king of the Persians. Uh, When they came back, they were just a small group. The initial group was somewhere around 45,000, and they had to rebuild the city, rebuild the walls, and they're living in temporary dwellings. And there's a reference later on in the Psalms to their tents, and that should be taken a little more literally. It's not a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles when they would create temporary booths or, and, and live in them, but that they were still at this period of time, this early period of the return, where they are living in temporary dwelling. The writer is speaking as the representative of the people. He refers to himself through the first person, but what gives this away is many times in the Hebrew he shifts inadvertently to plural verbs because he is viewing himself as the representative of the community, the representative of the nation. And so uh, we know that it's not talking about him because in some passages it says, uh, the nations surrounded me. Well, the nations don't surround an individual. They are surrounding Israel and the nation and Judah and with the intent to de- to destroy them. So this is a situation we see this. David, too, would refer to himself in some psalms as the first person, but he is representing uh, the nation. So what this leads us to conclude is that there's an extreme set of circumstances that is a result of God bringing a severe disciplinary action against the nation, which would threaten their very existence, and God has restored them. Now, there's only a few times in Scripture when this could possibly take place. One would be God's deliverance of the nation from slavery in Egypt. Another might be um, the deliverance uh, uh, from some severe battles that took place in almost their, their conquest during the period of the judges. But the scenario that fits it best is the return from the exile. God brought discipline on the nation, took them out of the land, and it looked as if the nations had won, the Gentiles had destroyed them, and there would be no return or resurrection of the nation. And yet God is faithful to his covenant, and he has brought them back. That which was insignificant, the stone the builders rejected, has been brought back and has been made the chief cornerstone again of God's plan and purpose uh, for for Israel. And so it fits a post-exilic declaration of God's grace. Also the fact that there's the mention of the chief cornerstone. They have uh, one of the first projects, most important projects after the return was rebuilding the temple, laying the cornerstone that this would be an illusion that would bring this idea to mind uh, for the psalmist. 
So that brings us to the occasion for the psalm, which I've stated is God's deliverance of the people from a time of severe divine discipline. Now, almost all scholars agree that this is a psalm written to celebrate the victory that God has given his people in battle, and that the psalm itself calls for a national procession up on the Temple Mount to praise God. Something along these lines. This is an earlier victory at the time of King Jehoshaphat of Judah when the Israelites had victory over the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites. And we're told that on the fourth day after this victory, the people assembled in the Valley of Bracha. That's the Valley of Blessing. Bracha is the Hebrew for blessing. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Bracha until this day. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat in front of them. So this is the processional that the king is leading. Uh, to go back to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. This is the same kind of situation. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord. It's this kind of scenario that is being, being reached. Now, as I said earlier, some think that this could be various situations in Israel, uh, history, the Exodus, some con- something going on during the period of the Judges, but it's most likely that this is the um, return after the exile, and it's the rebuilding of the temple. Now, there are four different times that this is uh, often suggested and summarized. The first is that this took place with the first celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles uh, in the seventh month, of the first year of their return. So they came back in, in 530, uh, 538, the, the, um, uh, Cyrus issues his decree for them to return. And when they return in 537, 536, then in the seventh month of the first year of their return, when there was only a plain, simple altar erected on Mount Moriah, where the temple was located, uh, this is described in Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. But not much is more is done. And what we see in this text is it the use of the grammar indicates that the temple has been completed. It's been built, and they're celebrating this. So that's probably not the time. Second option would be when the foundation stone for the second temple was laid. And this is described in Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. Third option would be the dedication of the completed temple in the twelfth month of the sixth year of Darius. This is described in Ezra chapter 6, verses 15 and following. These references um, don't quite uh, fit all the facts. I think the great feast of tabernacles described in Nehemiah eight thirteen to 18 is the one that's observed, and the temple has been completed at that particular time. So from all of this, we conclude a couple of important points. First of all, that this psalm refers to a historical event, and it must be interpreted first and foremost in terms of that historical event. Now, that's going to be critical, as we'll see. Remember, those of you who've gone through these studies with me in the past, when we've talked about how the Old Testament is used in the New Testament, that there are four basic ways the Old Testament is used in the New Testament. I covered this in Acts, if you want to go back and look at those. But briefly, you have a prophecy in the Old Testament 
that speaks about the future and is fulfilled as a future prophecy. That would be a passage like uh, Micah chapter 5, that uh, Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and it's fulfilled when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Then you have uh, another example where a historical event, such as uh, the uh, Israelites coming out of Egypt, a historical event is used uh, typologically uh, to foreshadow a future event and is applied to a future event, such as in uh, Hosea 11.1, 1, talks about out of Egypt I called my son, and that we've covered that in detail where that's referring to a historical event, but is applied typologically to Jesus and his family coming out of Egypt after the death of Herod the Great. Then you have an application uh, type of situation where uh, uh, Matthew quotes uh, quotes from Jeremiah when Jeremiah speaks of Rachel weeping the historical situation it's not a prophecy as the exiles are being taken off to Babylon the mothers are on the road and they are weeping because their sons and their daughter their sons and daughters are being taken off to Babylon and they won't ever see them again it is as if they were dead. So their mothers are weeping. But in Matthew 2, there are significant differences, but the mothers are weeping because their infants have been killed by Herod. So it is a this-is-like-that scenario. And then the fourth was you don't really have a specific event in the Old Testament, but you have a summary of things that are said about the Messiah, that he would be rejected by people. And so when you... Uh, get into the New Testament, he is called a Nazarene and to fulfill prophecy. Well, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that, but the idea was that someone who was from Nazareth was sort of like you might say some folks in Texas may think of people in Arkansas uh, it's not really quite having high IQ. When I was up in Connecticut, they used to be a little saying that if you cross the border into Maine, your IQ dropped 50 points. Uh, sometimes in, te- in Houston, we say things like that about folks who live in Pasadena, that maybe their family tree doesn't fork. Uh, every geographical location around the world in different countries and different cultures all have some area that they think, well, those people just quite aren't as bright and as cultured as as everybody else. I don't want to offend anybody from Maine or Arkansas or Pasadena. But um, Nazareth was like that. Nazareth was, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Those folks aren't real bright. There's only a few of them. They're just in the backwater of Nazareth. And so the summary of Old Testament teaching was the Messiah was going to be uh, looked down upon. And so that's applied. He would be called a a Nazarene. So those are the four different ways the Old Testament is used in the New Testament. And you can go back and listen to some earlier lessons in Acts where I go through those in, in, in detail. But it's important to understand that this probably fits either Category 2 or Category 3, which are talking about historical events. Now, the reason that's going to come, come up is that when you look at uh, this particular psalm, we're going to see a number of things that are referenced uh, in the psalm. But one of the things that, that you're going to see is in verse 24. It says, this is the day that the Lord has made. I'm not going to ask for anybody to raise your hands if you sung the little chorus that is very popular among churches. We had somebody lead us in it on the bus one day when we were in Israel. That was my first clue that I needed to go back to walking to Yad Vashem every morning. 
that trivializes the text. This is a day the Lord has made historically. If this is a historical psalm, it's referring to when God restored the nation and they completed the building of the temple. It's not referring to just any old day. It's not you wake up in the morning and you feel good and the sun's out and it's a great day and say, this is the day the Lord has made. No, the day that the Lord made was the day that he brought Israel back into the land and restored them and restored the temple. And this has a future application and significance. It is applied to the uh, what Christ does on the cross, and it is the fulfillment of this, you might say typologically, is when Jesus does come in, when they say, blessed is the name of the one who comes in the name of the Lord, or blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord when he establishes his kingdom. It's not just any old day. It is the days that God's redemptive work is, is fully developed. So this is the background. So the New Testament applies this as a type of future events related to God's messianic plan of redemption for Israel and the world. So, as we get into the text, begins, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And up there I have a picture of Solomon's temple because they were to sing this as they walked up Mount Moriah. If you don't know that, the the temple mount, which was the threshing floor of Yeruna the Hittite, that this was Mount Moriah, the same location where Abram, Abraham brought Isaac to sacrifice him, Mount Moriah. This is where the temple is located. The, the, when you talk about that um, Muslim monstrosity that's up there, the Dome of the Rock, see, I'm not politically correct. The rock is the rock that in Jewish legend, that's the creation rock where it all began. That would go back to Eden. But this is the rock on which uh, Abraham would sacrifice Isaac. The Muslim distortion of that is they think it was Ishmael. So that's the that's the rock that's there. It's the rock on which Abraham was going to sacrifice uh, sacrifice Isaac. So they would make this procession up on Mount Mount Moriah, and there they would turn to worship the Lord. Our time is running short, so I'm going to stop here. We've gotten our introduction. We understand that that this psalm is about something God did in the past that is going to be used in the New Testament to talk about what we have in Jesus Christ and who he is as the Messianic King. And this is why this psalm is quoted in Matthew chapter 21, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon your word, to see how the Old and New Testaments fit together but ultimately to learn that that the work of Christ on the cross, the death that he died on the cross, wasn't an accident of history, but was the focal point of your plan. It was planned from before the foundation of the earth, that he would come and he would go to the cross, and there he would die on the cross for our sins and pay the penalty for our sins, that we could have eternal life, not on the basis of who we are or what we do, but on the basis of who he is and what he did on the cross that salvation is a free gift. It is by faith alone in Christ alone. It is not to be earned or to be deserved, but it's to simply be accepted, to be received as a free gift by simply believing 
as John says over 85 times, believing that Jesus died on the cross for us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here, anyone listening that has never trusted Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so. At the instant that you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you receive eternal life, which can never be taken from you. You are made a new creature in Christ, and you are identified with him and his work on the cross that forever transforms you into a child of God. Father, we pray that as we respond to what we are studying, that we might recognize that, that it is incumbent upon us as the Old Testament events of Psalm 118 unfolded to worship you and to give thanks to you for your grace, for how you have worked in our lives to redeem us, and that this is something that has, was planned and prepared for throughout the Old Testament, leading up to its fulfillment in the life of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.